Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Prososhi, prososhi, which is roughly Greek for Achtung, Achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast with me, Al Murray and James Holland. Because we've gone Greek today in honour of Prince Philip, war veteran mentioned in dispatches, a man who fought in the Battle of Cape Matapan and much else against the Italian Navy and um, on the home convoys as well. He did a lot of that too, didn't he? Yep. More of his war record shortly. But first, goodness me, can it be so? We Have Ways... Of making you talk is today 300 episodes old. How about that, James? 300 episodes. I wonder what that is in solid days. 24 um, into 300. I don't know. Many, too, many too many. We'll get someone on it. We'll get someone to work it out for us. That's we'll an awful lot of war chat, isn't it? it? It's quite a lot of war waffle. Yeah, <laughs> war waffle. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> war blabber. We're like veteran podcasters, James. We're like you know. Yeah, yeah, well, almost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's quite something, it, isn't it? I mean, you know, from humble, humble beginnings, small acorns. Yeah, well, that. yeah, but I mean, the, the, uh, only because the, you know our tiny acorn is in fertile soil. Let's be honest now that 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 the, the people who have um, uh, come to us, as it were, offered their support, um, have made this blossom. I mean, it's you know what it's been the last year really though that's been where we've um, done the sort of lifting and connecting, which has been fantastic. Yeah, no, I've 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 hugely enjoyed it. I've I've enjoyed all our bants, but I've also enjoyed all learning loads from all the guests we've had on. I mean, they've just been to a, to a man and woman, completely fantastic. Yeah, and I've also really enjoyed our little sort of um, our specials that we've done. You know, whether it be Market yeah. Garden or whether it be Dunkirk, yeah. that was all you know, it was all great fun. Well, wasn't the it? Dunkirk, I have to say that the day for day Dunkirk that we did um, last summer. Mm. Um, uh, uh, you know, as as a sort of getting getting to grips with, I mean, in a way, getting to grips with how to do the podcast. It was like, in in lots of ways, it was like Britain finally facing the fact it was at war. Yeah. You know, we had to we had to bring in experts. <laughs> we had to face up with it every day. We had to get our arguments in order. We had to look at all the different aspects. Uh, it, you know, it, in many ways, it reflected the Dunkirk experience itself. I'm not. I don't think I'm overblowing that. <laughs> <laughs> in no way whatsoever. No way maybe whatsoever. maybe in 2024 we should do the 77 day run of the Normandy campaign. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, I don't know. I almost think we need to do like an anniversary of our Dunkirk coverage you know like in may like celebrate <laughs> we, we can find anniversaries every year can't we <laughs> well this is i mean this i mean that's actually something maybe we're not making enough of mind. it well well it's something that springs to mind actually is that someone um the other day said you know it's this this week and you sort of think this is the pro- this is the i can't remember what it was this is the problem in a way with the subject yeah. is you know six years where there isn't a dull moment yeah uh, so everything's everything's basically something's just happened or something is just about to happen Anywhere in the world at any point. And they're actually sort of organising that and keeping up with that. It's quite difficult. It's <laughs> really difficult. We should do something about, about the Battle of the Atlantic in May 1940, in, in May 1941, though. 80th anniversary next month. Well, all right. Why not? Well, no, we get some naval people on, which is the thing we keep, um, the, the promise we keep making but never quite delivering on. Uh, yeah, uh, get lots of naval people on to talk to talk navy. Anyway, for those of you who haven't seen uh, this on Twitter, we were sent a quite brilliant poem by a long-time listener, Russell Chapman, on our Facebook page, and I would like to read it for you now. Here we go. <laughs> <clears throat> Spare pricks on the Burma Road, following the Asdic Toad. Gavin on the Grosbeck Heights hangs around, smokes Marlboro Lights. Slim, the general, much preferred, where the Spitfires weren't interred. Beaver A and Hastings 2. Man for man, we've so got you. 
every Thursday night a treat. Much more than a jump on Crete. Alan Jim, host with no dangers. Buy my book on the Sherwood Rangers. PCA and Alex Ritchie keep the sidebar fingers twitchy. Yankees with their cool demeanour emphasised by that chasmina. Tolerate the limey patter. Patton says, it doesn't matter. Questions in as soon as pos. We won't digress or spread the goss. But falling wrens and gun machismo, coupled with some model gizmo, may delay your satisfaction. You can always switch to world in action. What? And miss the colonel's face? Tie so straight and hair in place? Of course you won't be doing that. Philippe Sands and Line of Rat will keep your juices fully flowing. Al's new tank he will be showing, but James will flag and look all in. Someone! Get the pervert in. <laughs> I've, noticed, I've noticed there's been Russell a few Chapman comments that. over the over the over the months about me flagging, <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know I am quite well known for turning in early. It has to be said. Yeah, but you start early, don't you? You get up, you get up early and bang out a couple of thousand words before breakfast, don't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just pour the it Holland out. way. You should maybe, <laughs> the, Jim. You need to. Do a you know little uh, little pamphlet called the Holland Way. How yeah. to write history the Holland Way? <laughs> yeah, because uh, it's I'm, remarkable. I'm, sort of, I'm, I'm turning into Monty, kind of sort of turning in at nine. I need my own time. <laughs> I won't be disturbed. Thinking time. <laughs> Actually, I went out for a run, crack of dawn this morning. And I was listening to John Cleese talking about cricket in the 1950s, and he then digressed really? to kind of, you know, his father being in the in India in the 1920s and. And and then him spending time with David Niven in, in, on a film in Rome in the 1970s. It was just absolutely brilliantly entertaining. Oh wow! I'll, I'll look that up. Yeah, I'll look that up at some point. Um, you, yeah. I mean, you've been you've been uh, over on your brother's podcast, haven't you? Talking about um, uh, five days in May, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, it's a different experience to doing us. I can tell you. <laughs> They all sit there discussing with Tony, you know, what order they're going to do questions and things. I mean, it's really kind really? of, they're quite formal. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. We get script. Oh. Go, go. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Off we go. Well, well, speaking of the script, um, we have a note where there's another note from a listener. Let's get, let's get all the, let's get the, let's get the, um, let's get through that. I mean, Tony spends all this time typing this up. It'd be wrong to not read it, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, um, did, did, Tony's Jane, brilliant. I mean, you know, where Tony's brilliant. I mean, yeah, it's not just, it's not just that he goes to the trouble that we ought to read the script. The scripts are good no, as well. <laughs> I suppose my, my, my point is this. Tony gives yeah. us a script and we just go, great. And we accept yeah. it. Whereas Tom and Dominic sit there sort of going, well, I'm not sure about that bit. And, you know, do we want to do that bit? And they they get really? all sort of slightly controlly about it. Yeah, but they're quite new, aren't they? Yeah. They're quite new to this Novices. podcasting lag, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, your bro- and your brother's doing his walk on the Yeah, so I'm going to join him, actually. I'm going to do that with him. Are you going to come along for a bit? Well, yeah. I'm, I asked him where he thought he'd be around lunchtime, and I haven't had a reply yet, so... <laughs> Uh, I, I can well, make I a bit Lord's of the day. By eleven fifteen, I think. All right. Well, I might, I might come to Lords then. Maybe I'll do that. Meet you. That'd at be Lord's. great. Yeah, I'm going to do the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Forty miles. It's a flip a long way though, isn't it? Forty miles. It's a, a very day. long way. Yeah. It's a very long. And way. Then cricket the next this, day. I'm going to. Are do there it. pubs involved? Is there like? Are there the staging? Were. I mean, I'd, I'd, we might have to sort of, you know, quickly get one and take a takeaway pint and walk down the road. Right, okay. Right. Okay. Well, I'll see what I can do. Anyway, here's another uh, another note from our listener Simon Walker. Dear James and Al, I know it's not quite the same as finishing a book on the Sherwood Rangers, but I have completed my own personal Everest and finally caught up with all the episodes after starting to listen to the pod at the start of lockdown. A huge thank you to you both for entertaining and informing us over the past 12 months and slaying a few myths along the way. Particular highlights for the Dunkirk day-by-day extravaganza, Al's readings of The Cauldron and The Wings of Pegasus, Philippe Sands, legend, and a late runner on the rails, Joseph Quinn and the Irish Fighters, which showed the complexity of our relationship with the Irish Republic in all its contradictions. And Family Stories is a stroke of genius. What's not to like? Looking forward to a sum of cricket and beer, supplemented by the pod and the ongoing arguments about the Mark 1 Spitfire. Cheers. P.S. A little family story that I thought you might like, which shows the ongoing influence of World War II. My youngest sister, Fiona, lives in the Netherlands. Her <laughs> oldest daughter, Lotte, is a very good water polo player who's just started to turn out for the ladies' team in Ada. The name of the team is the Polar Bears, named after the insignia of the 49th West Riding Division, which liberated the town. That's from Simon Walker. I didn't know yeah. that. That that sort of you know that's almost like Vitesse Arnhem, isn't it? 
Yes, it's a little bit. It's got a bit of that about it, hasn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks to all our listeners, um, just like Simon, for their unstinting support. We've released these 300 episodes in a little over two years, and we simply wouldn't have bothered if we hadn't received such wonderful feedback from our very own band of brothers and sisters. That's quite quite true. We wouldn't have put all these out if you weren't so into it. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) And it's just... Plenty uh, else to do. (laughs) I can tell you, for me, it's unbelievably reassuring to know there's lots of people out there who are interested. Well, yes, I, I suppose as a, as a direct um, kind of barometer, it's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, and also that they're not all kind of, you know, silver-top septuagenarians either. Yeah. There's yeah. some young folk out there who are listening. There are. There's some young folk out there, yeah, who come, uh, some of whom don't come with some of the baggage that, the, the, you know, the, uh, I've been talking to a guy in his 20s who's studying, studying history at Edinburgh, and he's, he's, he's sort of... He regards the Second World War as a piece of history rather than a thing that he's like got some sort of um, hardwired emotional ownership of or emotional connection to or, or that. He, you know, got, you've got to study it as a piece of history, unpack it, pop, unpack it properly, whatever that means. But at least he, he's coming out like that, not like, oh, I love a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, for me, I mean, you know, I think my consciousness of it all started with my mum telling me that, you know, I shouldn't spread so much butter on my toast and in the war they hardly yeah. had any. Yeah. Yeah, my you know mate, my any, any any kind of any sign of greed um, in me as a boy was always referenced to just how tough it had been in second no World bananas World. no bananas what no bananas, no bananas. what no bananas and uh, mum had to eat her rabbit they ate their pet rabbit disappeared well yeah and as I told you my <laughs> mum had to eat a pig yeah pig oy yeah. Anyway, um, uh, the well, yes, we've gone Greek because uh, three hundred, of course, Thermopylae. Um, that that's a reference to your brother, but <laughs> yeah, obviously. Um, um, but but also because of the passing, the death of Prince Philip, mm. um, uh, who, after all, um, I know, I know, he ended up in a highly privileged position, but he is a displaced person, if you want, um, yep. a pre-war displaced person, fled the Nazis and all that sort of stuff, an, an immigrant. Um, uh, 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 and uh, an alien neutral, wasn't he? That's one of the interesting things about him, isn't he? Yeah, he had a very, very tough childhood in many ways. I mean, you know, obviously he was privileged to a certain extent, but, you know, he was he was quite substantially younger than the rest of his sisters, who were all married married off by 1930, all to um, German aristocrats, it, sh- uh, it should yeah. be said, two of which later kind of one flew for the Luftwaffe and um, the other one was a, was a rabid Nazi. Um, his mother was in an asylum, confined to an asylum for much yeah. of the 1930s. His father, um, Andrew of Greece, was in southern France, and he was packed off to Britain, uh, first to Cheam Prep School and then to Gordonston. And Gordonston's interesting yeah. because, of course, the, the it was at one of those new schools like Stowe and Bedales, yeah. um, and currently sort of wacky and radical. Um, and the headmaster was a guy called um, uh, Ron, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, who was um, a who was a Jewish German nationalist who then had to leave Germany because because he was a Jew. That's so right. like a quite an interesting brew of a person. Absolutely, and, and and was into like breeding leaders and tough tough people because nations needed tough leaders and all that sort of stuff. And the kids were barefoot and treated as Spartans. And all. I mean, three hundred again. Yeah, what, what wasn't it? It's all quite. I mean, quite wacky, really. Yeah. Um, even now, that would. Be, I mean, well. Well, I don't know. Is it education coming back round that kids are supposed to play in uh, rags in the mud? I don't know. Well, of course, it's it's it's, a, it's the birth of the Duke of Edinburgh Award, isn't it? Which I think yeah. um, um, becomes goes into being in 1956, and yeah, you know that that is a direct result of of his upbringing uh, up in Scotland and at Gordonstone, and that idea of self reliance, resilience, thinking on your yeah. feet, practical yeah. knowledge, you know, getting out there and doing stuff. Um, you know, he was sort of once asked, you know, how did you cope with your traumatic, difficult childhood? And he just said, yeah. well, one just does. One gets on with it. I mean, yeah. you know, and that, that you know, he's, I suppose, he's, you know, his passing is interesting, isn't it, on a number of levels? Because, first of all, it's a sort of, it, it feels like a, a break with, with a world that is becoming increasingly alien. I mean, it is absolutely clear that this sense of, you know, duty, you know, honour, uh, was something that was absolutely inculcated into him and that he believed profoundly, as does the Queen, of course. And, and you know, people still have very sort of um, 
strong sense of social responsibility of that there's absolutely no question but but this sense of kind of duty this sort of single-mindedness of purpose yeah. this kind of sort of I mean, not the, making a fuss about anything and just sort of you know taking the hits that come with you that is something that we identify with the second world war generation as well i think yeah i, I mean there's been a lot of i mean what, what's been interesting is there's been a lot of kind of chat about oh you know what a remarkable uh chappy is the naval career he had and all this yes but also in a way he's not special an awful lot of people did stuff just like him um, that we that, that we don't know about, or that we do know about. You know, there's 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 more gallant and more. You you know what I mean? I do. But 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 because he occupies such a prominent position because of you know who he ended up marrying, he's sort of totemistic of that of that um, mindset and that attitude. And he, I mean, you do see him go. I wasn't special. It wasn't. And he really, you could tell he meant that, and he was right. You know, I, I don't think the modesty that that he that on these on on his wartime career that he insisted on sticking to, I don't think that's remarkable in itself. It, it's it, yeah. It's, uh, well, it's, I, sort I, of, I, it's I, kind of it's typical, isn't it? And uh, for, for an awful lot of people of that generation, and and I think they're not talking about it is partly because an awful lot of people didn't talk about it, but also because he didn't feel that he'd done anything that anyone else didn't do. He was just like everybody else in in that respect. You're right, though. It feels like, it does feel like, because he's so high profile, I mean, there will be other people to go after him who are of that generation. But because he's so high, pro- high profile, it does feel like, right, that's it, That that that's yeah th- 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 an, e- an end, certainly. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been sort of thinking about it a bit over the last few days. Uh, I think it was back in 2013. Um, I got very, very... We got greenlit by the BBC, and I was very, very close to interviewing for a special, a BBC special on, you know, Prince right. Philip's War. Um, yeah. And it got all the way to the very top. So, first of all, he was sounded out, and he said, mm, OK, you know, send in the... You know, send in what you're thinking. And it got through all the kind of the secretaries, the PRs, equerries, all the, the baffles, yeah, yeah. All, all the kind of you know, we were right on the kind of final rung of the ladder, which of course was him himself. And he then said, "No, actually, I don't want to do it." And 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 our argument was, um, and how we tried to persuade him: Look, you know, you're one of a of a of a dying generation, and 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 you know, you are a beacon for the country, and and you know, the the, the people of this country have a have a right to know about your your war record which was was really good you know don't you think you kind of you know that obviously it wasn't it was put more kind of subtly than that but but that was the kind of the approach and I think that's how we got it in in the first place but I think ultimately he decided no because you know what he was never known as Prince Philip the man with the great war record was he he's it's only in the last kind of five or ten years that that that's come to the fore and that is of course because he is now so he has been he became such a rarity you know in terms of 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 active people who'd who'd had a kind of you know half decent war and i mean he was ordinary in many ways but also he wasn't i mean i think he had a pretty exceptional war really and and that goes back to his kind of time he leaves gordonston then goes to dartmouth college you know and he he wins two of the kind of outstanding cadet awards that there are you know and he's up against people who've been at dartmouth since they're 13 you know he's he's 18 at the time Uh, and so that's already marked him out and you don't you you just don't get that because of favors or anything like that you get that purely on ability you know, when he finally passes his um, um, his sub lieutenant's exams, he does so with distinction in the summer of 1941 or 42 or whenever it was. You know, so, you know, he has pretty good. And also, you know, by the time he's on HMS Wallace in 1943, or no, summer of 1942, is, I think is when he joins Wallace. You know, he is he is one of the youngest first lieutenants in the Royal Navy, you know, at a time of war where there's kind of thousands of them. So you know you you don't get there just because you're Dicky Mountbatten's nephew. You get there because you you you, you can get certain favours because you're Dicky Mountbatten's nephew, but you don't get. Well, you 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 get to go to Dartmouth if you're broke, for instance. Yes, that's right. Why, the, the and you and you also then get a place in the Royal Navy when, strictly yeah. speaking, you shouldn't because well, a neutral, a, 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 a neutral, foreign neutral, aren't you? A yeah, foreign yeah. neutral, but but. But Mountbatten argues, he says, yes, but he's been educated here. He's lived here since, a, you know, he's got, you know, he's a relative of mm. Queen Victoria. That gives him the right to, to, to be in the Royal Navy. You know, his, yeah. his, his uncle, George Milford Haven, um, you know, served with distinction at the Battle of Jutland. You know, surely he should be allowed in. And, you know, when you put it like that, you know, how can you refuse? Although, and although, many, although many, although many wags would, would uh, you know, uh, would point out that so he could have also gone to Germany and <laughs> said... 
Yeah, yeah, no, of course, know, but, but, but I, I, I should be on, in the Kriegsmarine, you know. Yeah, but but also that 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 showed that he was of the right moral stature to kind of be part of the yeah. Royal Navy because he yeah. chosen not to be part of that. He had no yeah. truck with Nazism whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, in his first his first action is is with um, you know he's on HMS Ramillies, and then he changes to HMS Valiant battleship, and his first action I think is is in the uh, illustrious Blitz in January 1941 when they're, yeah. um, they're escorting convoy into Malta and the Luftwaffe arrived in um, in Sicily and they attack the, uh, the escorts and, and hammer, then subsequently hammer illustrious when it gets damaged and is in yeah. Grand Harbour very heavily in January 1941. He's involved in that out at sea. Um, he's then, as people have pointed out, he's at the Battle of Cape Matapan, which at the time is the first major kind of fleet-on-fleet engagement of, yeah. the, of the Second World War. And... You know, it is a major action. It's a very difficult action for the British, um, and it's and the reason they do it at night is because they know their superior seamanship will will bear fruit, and because the opportunity arises. But you know, night action is always you know notoriously tricky. And, and Prince Philip on HMS Valiant is is commanding a searchlight, the searchlights, you know, in which he's shining the searchlights onto the enemy ships, which are subsequently being kind of blown to smithereens. I mean, it is an absolute slaughter that battle. Um, He's then involved with the uh, Greek, uh, the landings on Crete, and and the first the first part of the battle. He's not on the evacuation, but he's on when the uh, when the Germans land. So he's involved in that. Um, and yeah, you know, he's then on home convoy duty, and then he's at Sicily. And at Sicily, he does a, an amazing action because uh, he's on HMS Wallace off Syracuse on the night of the tenth of July. So this is kind of you know the first. This is D Day. And on that night, it's a beautiful, clear night. The wind has dropped down. You know, the stars galore. There's a kind of half moon, I think it was. You know, so there's a significant amount of light. And one of the things that happens, if you're in a bomber, you can't really see the bombers because they're dark against the sky. But the bombers can see you because you're awake. It kind of, the wake gives off this kind of sort of weird kind of phosphorescence. It's sort of very, very bright. So the Italian bombers come over and they see the ships moving around. Um, and they bomb them and they're a little way off, but they can see that they're doing this big wide circle round and going to come back again. So he says, OK, well, let's fire a, You know, there's a sort of conflab on the bridge. Uh, and it is it is Prince Philip who says, look, I think we should fire some flares in the direction of the bombers so that our anti-aircraft guns can sort of, you've got something to aim at. They do that and it doesn't work. They don't hit the bombers. And the bombs are, are just a little bit closer, a bit too close for comfort. And the kind of the, the, the fear is that they'll go around a third time and on the third time they'll hit them. So, again, it is it is Prince Philip who suggests to the captain a, a course of action. And that is to kind of set up a raft, put on kind of smoke flares. So it looks Build like burning debris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. send it yeah. off, then scuttle away and then, then cut the engines dead. And the bombers come around and they bomb the raft. And as if that's not enough, he then later joins the Pacific Fleet um, in 1944-45. In and he's there on the USS Missouri on the 2nd of September at the formal signing of the, um, of the surrender. You see, that's the, that's the one I'd want to, I'd, if I'd been interviewing, that's the one I'd want to talk to him about. Because, because you know, sc scrapes, scrapes on your battleship, an awful lot of people did that. You know, uh, stuff around, stuff in the med. You know, plenty of people did that, but not very many people you know, what eyewitness to that moment that, yeah. that, or, or certainly surviving people. And yeah. that, that's the one where you think now that's 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 the that's the sort of um, the thing that makes him exceptional, in my view, is yeah. that he was there for that. And you'd have, you, you know, what was the mood like? Um, uh, all that all that sort of, you know, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I can almost see why maybe he he didn't want to talk about it, even though he was one of the last few left, because he would have thought, well, they're trying to. What they're I, trying, they're trying to convey a kind of sense of sort of heroism and, and, and bigging him up in a way that he doesn't feel it's, you know, that's, his whole that's point what, has been being incredibly modest, it, isn't it? Exactly. That's the thing, as I understand him. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, One doesn't shoot and he'd have been Exactly. There are plenty of other people much braver than me. Um, yep. I was I really was only doing my duty. You know, anyone else would have done it, blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff, yep. well, uh, uh, which I think... Which I think a lot of people just can't, they just don't seem to be able to believe that that might be 
that that might be a thing that might motivate someone anymore. You know, I mean, it's that is my the, point. It's a very kind of yeah. you know to, by today's standards, it's a very old fashioned. I mean, I've, I've got to say, I, for obvious reasons, I, I find that a very attractive attitude. You know, yeah. because because now yeah, I wish the, the, I, I wish I possessed it. <laughs> well, quite. But I mean, you know, the, the modern way is to kind of, sort of big yourself up, isn't it? And kind yeah. of you know, yeah. absolutely shoot a line at every available opportunity. Yeah. Um. You know, that's something that's sort of come across the Atlantic, and which we you know which we've all adopted. Well, although. Well, you say that, but you say that, but you know the family story on Sunday. There's the the, the bloke talking about his father flying B-17s and his dad's just my duty. Yeah, doing my duty, flying those bombers. You know, whatever. And and then the row he had, plainly the row that that family had about Vietnam that followed, which yep. I think is quite, which was sort of not, which was suggested in that letter from what um, one of our listeners, but not yep. but not fleshed out in full, which I think is also which is also very interesting. Um, uh, uh, I mean, I, I you know, I, but, but I, that whole sense of sort of selfless devotion to oh, duty, yeah. you know, that that, yeah. that is, it's still there, but it doesn't have that kind of, you know, I mean, the, that was a much greater kind of, particularly people with his background, that was just a sort of, that was how it was. It's the same, you know, that's yeah. one of the things that's so attractive about, about Phil Marshall Alexander is this idea that, you know, he had no personal ambition whatsoever. His ambition but, was to do his duty and to be honourable and cuff, be but brave. Coupled with the, but coupled also with the idea that his business is his own business. You yes. bloody well leave him alone. He doesn't care yeah. what you're interested in about him. And, you know, that that... that that kind of is the is the trade off, isn't it? I suppose he does his duty. You mind yeah. your own fucking business is what it <laughs> yeah. looks like, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think that you know that 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 that's really interesting because we no one minds their own business anymore. I mean, you know, if the, 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 no. the, those two, that's been the that's been the sort of uh, if you were drawing a graph, you know, that's the x y axis, isn't it? It's more yeah. of ones come in, the others, you know, in, in return. I mean, it, it is very interesting though that his career. You know, again, it just shows because he spent an awful long time on the home convoy. Stephen Fisher um, uh, tweeted a load of stuff about uh, about his about his naval career, and you know, home convoys is a thing that again, getting coal um, all round the British Isles at a time when you really need coal to flow without any um, out any problems, incredibly important part of. And yet again, it's the Royal Navy being like the buses running on time. You. They make that happen and they're under attack the whole time because, after all, it's within reach of German air power. So yep. you're, you're, you're entirely sort of um, uh, open to interference by the Germans. You keep that running. It's another thing, another aspect of the Royal Navy's duties. You know, when people say, oh, no, no one talks about the Arctic convoys. Well, no one talks about the home convoys. No one no. talks about all of this stuff, this... Um, I mean, let's face it, no one talks about anything other than kind of Battle of Britain and Normandy, if we're completely <laughs> honest. Occasionally Alamein. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> so, so there's an awful lot of people and an awful lot of part of the war which is uh, badly left out. <laughs> well, anyway, we're going to take a short break um, uh, and then we'll return uh, and we will um, answer some of your questions, uh, honestly. Welcome back. Time for your questions. And we'll start. Should we Should we just bowl straight into one, Jim? Yeah, go on then. Have you been, uh, by the way, have you been in nets and all that sort of thing? You've been getting ready for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, yeah, no, I have. And I'm also, I'm, 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 I've, I've broken up a bat the other day. So I'm, I'm I'm visiting a bat manufacturer in Bridgewater on Wednesday morning. So I've got a really well, fantastic week. That's a, that, well, because here's a question. How often do you break bats? Quite often, at least one a season. Right, good. And that's um, because they're, they're, I mean they're much more powerful than they used to be, but they're not as um, they're not as robust. They're not as pressed as hard, which gives them it's it's the lack of pressing which gives them the kind of springiness, which means you can sort of you know smack sixes left, right, and centre or whatever. Um, but but that does mean they're more prone to break. And also what what tends to happen is is they're not left in quite the right temperature over the winter and things like that. You know you don't they don't want to be too warm and then suddenly too cold and. You know, and I, they just sit here in my office. You know, so, so, so they, at night it's freezing, and, and by day it's oh, right, warm. Oh, okay. That's not very good for the mind. Oh, oh, I thought you meant by the bat manufacturers rather than you. Not no, no, no. For me, once I've got them, <laughs> so they tend not to. So yeah, so this one, this one went went the other day, and 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 you know, it's it's just got it's got that crack there. Is yeah. it goes all yeah. the way around? It's just it's you see, the, um, it's the crack of I've doom. Been I've been breaking breaking more drumsticks lately, and I've I've started <laughs> I to come, it's the same thing. come come to the view that. Maybe they're manufactured the, or the woods, you know, they're cutting corners on the wood or whatever. I won't, I won't name them, but um, but that, that you know, because I, I tend, you know, 
usually you'd break one a year and I've broken I've broken a bit more than that lately. Do you not think it's just Maybe. you're 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 angrier? Well, I'm a baby, <laughs> or I'm just such a rotten clod hopping drummer that, uh, that no, you know, we know that's definitely going to happen. No, no, but, no, but I mean, it's uh, funny. It's a, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, because the moment you start talking about breaking cricket bats, I immediately thought about it's the part of the same thing because after all, you, you got your hands on it. It's a, it's an extension of you, and it's to do with uh, how you go. Anyway, if I'm um, honest though, I slightly will it because <laughs> there's nothing that makes me happier, possibly apart from sort of being in a Mustang or a Spitfire. Um, than buying a new bat? Yeah, just, you know. It's just, really? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It really gives me an awful lot of pleasure. You see, I going love thinking to a about drop... it, thinking about, you know, yeah. looking at all the different types, wondering you what see, sort of game, shall I, shall going... I veer off and go sort of different brand? So I'm going to a completely new make I've never tried before. So I'm quite really? excited about it, yeah. You see, you see, this is not dissimilar to choosing uh, drum uh, skins, actually. Every now yeah. and again, I go, right, okay, it's time for a different weight. It's time for a different coating. Okay, my, my, my theory is that there is absolutely no <laughs> point a bloke having an obsession if there isn't something you can purchase on the back of it. Oh, amen. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, oh, whether it by be the models, way. Whether it be, whether it be battle dress, yeah, whether yeah, it be cricket. Yeah, whatever bats. it is. Yes, um, there's a modelling competition that Red5 Models on Twitter, at Red5 Models on Twitter um, has been talking about, that um, we will, I will... We'll, uh, sort something out with the podcast when I'm a bit more organised I'm going to take part in the idea is that when the shops reopen you have to buy a kit for under 20 quid and make it and you're not allowed to use any aftermarket parts and you've just got to make one to the absolute best of your ability he was trying to do it that it was model and paints for under 20 quid and that is impossible so uh that, that, so, just we'll, we'll talk about, so you're going to do it, are you? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to try and do that. Yeah, yeah, but but it's, it's a time it's a bit of a, of a time thing uh, wow, that, sounds, that, that, that sounds quite tough it's a challenge because there's not many kits under 20 quid. So a lot of people are going to eBay. There's a lot of people comparing, yeah. uh, uh, comparing. Anyway, let's it's a bit a like question. you kind of you, you're being a sort of, you know, your not natural form is, is the test match of model making, isn't it? Yes. And, and now suddenly you're being thrust yes. into the hundred. Yeah, well, exactly. That's exactly what it is. You know, exactly. have you got prefer... the skills? Have you got the multi-format skills? That, that's, that's probably gonna... probably not, Jim. Well, OK, no, I'm backing you. I'm backing you. I think you can pull it off. <laughs> Now, Rob Spencer has a question for us, and uh, he's a serving member of British Forces. Um, good morning. Really enjoying being an independent company member. I highly recommend joining to all that listen to the podcast. I'm in the Royal Air Force and currently attached to the British Army. Those we discovered the other day, don't get too friendly. <laughs> that, yeah. That's a... That's a thing to come. Um, I'm deployed <laughs> in operations. I am deployed. That's what always happens when we do all these recordings, isn't it? I know, I know. Like, when, I know. Was when everything's in the wrong order. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, um, I'm deployed on operations in Somalia, working with the African Union peacekeeping force, AMISOM. I work within the, uh, the CIMIC, or CIMIC, I don't know, I don't know or CIMIC, I don't know how you pronounce it, C-I-M-I-C, Civilian Affairs. I mean, the military loves an acronym, let's be honest now. Yeah, um, uh, the civilian affairs branch and support operations through civil, civilian military coordination, cooperation and stabilisation that doubtless also has an acronym. My question is, could you offer any information on what units and or organisations were involved with civilian affairs after the initial beach landing in 44 going throughout the remaining time of the war and what activities they conducted. That's squadron leader Rob Spencer. P.S. The Thursday live stream is a bit late for me as Somalia is three hours ahead. However, it's got easier with British summertime now. Only two hours difference. Keep up the great work as a team. Um, that's a good question, isn't it? Yeah. What, what, also, what interesting. Simic so, was so there? Good, good, a really good friend of mine called John Wakeland. He he was officer commanding of British forces in uh, in Somalia for a bit. He did a right. Yeah, and his number two was another great mate of mine, and they didn't know each other beforehand. So they were two independent mates, both in the army. And um, yeah, they had a they had an interesting time. Put it that way. Well, short question. I'm sure plenty of people listening to this don't know that we have people deployed in Somalia, yeah. working with the African Union. There's plenty of people mm -hmm. that don't know there's an African Union, let alone an African Union peacekeeping force, Amisom. I mean, how many? What are we talking? Like a like a headquarters? Yeah, so it's uh, a headquarters. Uh, um, a headquarters on the edge of Mogadishu, I think it was. Um, and yeah, I, I couldn't tell you how many people there are there. Kind of maybe, you know, couple of hundred. Like a, yeah, something like that. Yeah, Gosh, I mean, he's a John was a full colonel when he was out there, and um, yeah, yeah, you know. So, but but yeah, I mean, it's quite a, quite a challenging time. Yes, I've got to say, you know, yeah. um, 
Yeah, I won't go there actually, but I probably, I probably shouldn't say. I probably shouldn't say. Okay, but, no, fair enough, fair enough. Well, no, that's that. That's how uh, it is. But interesting, it? and I will put it this way: I don't, I don't think you know all the work of the UN was massively helpful. Um, right. Uh, anyway, so so anyway. Simikin. So what what what's now called Simikin in in forty uh, four after Normandy? What was there? Yeah, so it was it was called civil affairs, is what it was called, and um, they the, the kind of. They they set up civil affairs for um, for North Africa, but then really it started to really kind of start to come into a um, a kind of proper shape really when they went into Sicily and then subsequently southern Italy. So there was there was form, yeah. and they and attached to that was was AMGOT, which was Allied Military Government of Occupied Territories, which yeah, you know because um, Italy was subsequently kind of sort of pretty friendly towards the Allies. You know they 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 got rid of the occupied territories bit, so it just became AMG, um, and certainly you know there was no OT. Um, on Amgot when it came to France, so so but it, it, it's civil affairs of France was really really difficult because of the kind of you know very difficult comp- um, relationship with with uh, De Gaulle. De Gaulle expecting to be the provisional head of the of the new government, and Roosevelt continually blocking that, um, and the British supporting Roosevelt, you know, just because you know they they, they would have they would have supported it earlier had Roosevelt not felt so strong about it but they weren't going to kind of go against 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 the Americans um and 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 de Gaulle was very very bitter about that and and sort of you know chucked his toys out of the pram in a massive way and I think actually to, to, to a certain extent I think he had a point because I think his argument was you know it needs a Frenchman and it needs someone to bring stability what Roosevelt was worried about was that he'd seen de Gaulle in action was incredibly worried that de Gaulle was going to become a little kind of you know petan replacement a kind of little dictator kind of he knew he was very anti-communist and all the rest of it and the whole point was the American thing is is you know no we're liberating people so that they can have free elections we're not going to have strong armed commanders and all the rest of it but eventually in August 1944 it was agreed by the Americans that he would be the head of the provisional government until free elections could be held uh, and they subsequently were after the war, so that was all fine. Um, but but it was his kind of grandstanding and his arrogance and all the rest of it that really kind of sort of got up people's noses. But if you're de Gaulle, you, you know, you you can see where he's coming from too. So I do think it's kind of six of one, half a dozen the other. But on a kind of more micro level, um, what they were set off... I mean, so the civil affairs planning, um, the planning team began at St Paul's School alongside the main 21st Army Group planning teams. Um, there were 248 of them. They were both Americans and British. They were headed actually for, for the 21st Army Group by Brigadier um, Thomas Robbins was the name of the guy. Americans had a similar kind of setup um, where they were. Um, although in each there were British and Americans in both teams, although they were headed up by an American team and a British team. So in the case of um, the British, uh, well, British and American civil affairs teams were set up in exactly the same way. So you would have a detachment of... Um, 10 men and that would be four officers and six other ranks and you would usually have two officers who were general administration usually a major and a captain you'd have two officers who were police and public safety usually a major or a captain and a lieutenant um, then you'd have one general admin major and he would command the whole thing and then the other ranks would be Clark, Cook, Batman, Interpreter and two drivers and so they'd be have they'd, they'd beetle around with two 1500 weight trucks two motorbikes um you know and and you know maybe a dingo later on something like that and so they, they so the british ones were so so 201 civil affairs detachment was destined for Caen. um 202 was destined for Bayeux. uh i think there was 204 206 went up to 222 um there are there are a number of them uh, and usually what you would do is you'd go into a town and you'd immediately hook up with the mayor you know the mayor, and and you'd you'd kind of see what the situation was. Where was the Maori still intact? You'd 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 issue you'd try and get the mayor to agree to issue Eisenhower's proclamations. Um, you, you'd try and sort of you'd find out what the situation was. What was the situation of, of of running water, electricity, food? How many refugees were there? You'd sort out the towns first, then you'd go to the into the villages, and you literally do this one after another, going in and trying to sort it out. And if and if you felt that the mayor or or the, whoever wasn't the right person, you'd just sack him on the spot. You'd you'd link up with local resistance and you'd sort them out and and you'd get their advice. You'd absolutely talk to them, but you'd also completely one hundred percent show who's boss. 
So a very interesting situation is, is you know, when they finally get into Con on the 9th of July, for example, the mayor is absolutely gutted. Um, the prefecture is also in a complete mess. Um, the prefect of Calvados is a petanist. Um, yeah. Uh, the mayor is. So he is, has is, to go. So he's yeah. got to go. So there's a guy called uh, Monsieur Doré, um, who is the former rector of um, the University of Caen, who's been pretty outspoken about the Germans. He's a really sensible, safe pair of hands he's absolutely on message with the allies um and he gets brought in to become the new prefect of calvados and they kind of sort of work it out i mean you know uh, banks reopen in normandy on the 14th of june you know in, the, in where they're liberated for example um refugee camps are set up so there's one for well yes um, i was going to ask about that because because the, the about camps because that obviously puts quite a different texture on things isn't it if you're turning yep. up to liberate people and then you're organizing them and sticking in stick stick them in camps which which have then got to not bear a resemblance to the camps the enemy's been operating that's quite tricky politically isn't it yeah so all of which is quite difficult and you know but as soon as you've got a camp you've sort of you've got rules and the whole yeah. point is to be you know so there's this again there's this kind of sort of slight paradox um and that doesn't make life too you know, particularly easy. But I mean, you know, some of the lamps, camps are quite big. I mean, you know, 2,000 at Amley, 1,500 yeah. at a, a, a place called Boise. Um, yeah. You know, so there's, a, there's quite a lot of them because there's an awful lot of refugees, inevitably. Yeah. You yeah. know. Um, yeah. But it's also kind of working out prices for food, um, seeing, you know, where things are, where there are shortages of supply. But the overriding thing is, is civilian affairs are secondary to military requirements. Yeah. You know that is absolutely. What do they? You know, what do they do currency wise? Do they issue a new a new franc or something? Yeah, no, they introduced uh, they introduced occupation money, which is which is one of the de Gaulle's big 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 bugbears. Yeah, um, and uh, it didn't last that long, to be honest. It was yeah. it was then run concurrently with the with the with the francs when that was. Yeah, and then well, and the moment you're running different currencies against each other, yeah. then you 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 create you create currency exchange. One of them can collapse. Uh, one can skyrocket yep. in its value and all that sort of thing, and you 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 create market tensions that, um, I mean, in, in times of inevitable scarcity, can cause all sorts of problems, can't you? And you know, that's yeah. why you end up with cigarettes being worth more than money and all that sort of thing. Right. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, in, when they were in Italy, they had real problems because of because of the the, um, the the levels of literacy were only about fifty percent in Italy at the time. So yeah. they put up all these notices and everyone would ignore them, and they go, "Well, hang on, what's going on?" And of course, they can't read. So yeah, you, yeah, then they'd have to get in translators for people to do it, and they'd have to yeah. get all right, gather around, guys. You know, listen in. This is what you can do. This is what you can't yeah. do. All this kind of yeah. stuff. And there was no no such problems in France, really. But but you know, it's 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 extremely difficult. You know, it's um, uh, it's extremely yeah. challenging, and um, particularly yeah. when there is so much collateral damage and so much destruction, and and the, and the civil affairs are absolutely secondary to to military matters. You know, so. yeah. Well, and when you've got. And like you say, when you've got political actors in the picture as well, so who are going right. to who are going to the moment the, the the moment the Allies look like they're letting the, the, the French civilian population, Italian civilian population down, you've got all sorts of interested parties keen to exploit that to make the most of that. I mean, it, I don't. You, it's impossible to envy anyone working in this at all, isn't it? I mean, it's really bloody yeah. difficult. Very very difficult. I mean, I think substantially harder in in Italy. Um, than it was in in France because I think the levels yeah. of of depredation were were just considerably worse. But it was a system. Also, I think France benefited from the fact that they came after Italy. So you know you've kind of honed it a little bit. And I think the Belgians and the Dutch and stuff and and you know they, they benefited from coming after after France because again you know the these you know with experience you you, you learn how to handle you know you, you suddenly you've every there's no surprise situation because you've seen it all before you know after two months in the field or three months in the field or whatever you know and you, you've got that cadre of people even people are replaced you know you've got that you also you know there aren't many replacements because for the most part they're not in the front line they did actually start sending out detachments with you know spearhead de detachments with frontline divisions so that when they got into a village they were there very quickly because what the frontline troops were finding was that they were sort of being distracted by you know civilians coming out and asking them stuff and mobbing them and all the rest of it and, and that's fine for kind of 20 minutes but you you know there's an enemy to fight and you don't really want to get so so they were then coming coming to the front i mean it's really 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 interesting but but for the most part these guys were not dying i mean obviously they're 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 you know, there's a mine that they go up on a jeep or whatever or get sniped at or something but for the most part they're kind of you know they're, they're reasonably safe so then they haven't got that revolving door of personnel so very quickly they start to kind of build up an awful lot of experience 
Um, and that makes them just become ever more capable. I think things start to change a bit when they get to Germany because, of course, you know, they're Germans and, you know, they're the enemy. And so there is this kind of, you know, they're not liberated people anymore. I mean, they are in a sense, but they're not. Um, you know, so, so there is that kind of, you, you can't help but feel resentful, particularly when you sort of suddenly reach Bergen-Belsen and things. Yeah. You know, you don't feel yes, well, quite so yeah. simpatico well, as you would to a well, to a starving family in Holland. Yeah, but although the, the, you know, how they view the Germans, they're sort of... Re- feelings flip-flop don't they people, yeah of course people, yeah. yeah all over the place because mm. there's that thing is there a lot of, a lot of soldiers say when they get to german germany the germans are like tidying up tidying up the smashed up towns out there with a broom and, and trying to sort it out in a way that no, no one else had up to that point and they find that that as a, a different thing to get their heads around They've, yeah you know you, you do get lots of expressions of sympathy towards the germans oddly that you know that that after all this, they're just people. You've smashed, you've smashed the country up. You've killed all their young men, and actually, after all, they, it turns out they're just people. And yeah, you know that you've been led into the belly of the beast and all this sort of thing. Even Bergen-Belsen, notwithstanding, I mean, it's all. I mean, it's you know that that the complexities around that that phase right at the end of the war is so interesting, and uh, you know that the, the, the desire for vengeance recedes so quickly is all part yeah. of that too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, fascinating. I, I think for the most part, you know, civil affairs is, I, I think it's sort of considered to have done a pretty good job in incredibly difficult circumstances. Yeah. There was there was definitely some early vindictiveness in, in Italy, you know, setting of, of kind of um, exchange rates and things like that was, was pretty vindictive and kind of definitely added to the misery. <clears throat> and there was an awful lot of kind of sort of where you started, you shouldn't have started in the first place and all this kind of thing. But, but again, as you say, you know, it, it very, you know, what... What people, whether they're frontline soldiers, whether they're civil affairs officers, um, you know, they they very quickly, once they meet and get to know people, they're no longer the Italians, the Germans, the French, the Belgians. They are individuals who, as you say, you know, have have, have emotions and well, they're mostly and, and, suffered, and, suffered terribly, and suffered terribly. Yeah, in, so you know, caught up and, in this and, thing. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Okay, should we do it? Should we do another question? Why not? Uh, push the boat out via Twitter asks can you trace a concentration champ victim via a tattoo they were given there I'm trying to find out which one my granddad was kept in um, uh, you, you, I think you can buy the tattoo but not you know that will tell you who it was and therefore you'll then work out what, I don't think think there is a code for, for, for a camp because right. people were particularly concentration camps people were transferred so I think yeah. you just you just got that tattoo and that tattoo is registered and, and I'm pretty sure all. It, it, I think they're all. They all survived, didn't they? I think that's. It's all the in the bureaucracy, isn't it? So you, yeah. you, you, you would be able to trace it. I mean, that, you I, would be able to trace it, but you need a specialist, a specialist who who knows how to do that. And that you know they've got all those files, haven't they? And they're still going yeah. through them. I mean, you know, because there's yeah. so many millions, it just takes such a long time. Yeah. So I think I think that's the answer to that one. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, uh, from Holland. Uh, Sega Vinken asks, I'm currently reading Normandy 44 and was wondering the following. Have you considered Hans Spidel's lack of quick response maybe was on purpose, <laughs> given future <laughs> events and his involvement in the July 20th plot? Also, not relaying orders to bomb Paris. Thanks. Love the podcast, which also led me to buy your book. I mean, there's a win's a win. Um, uh, yeah, thank Sega you. Vinken. Thank That's, you, Sega. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so I think Hans Spider is. Uh, I think he massively bigged up his part in in resistance. I don't think he was quite as as involved in it as he liked to make out post war. Um, and and part of the reasons why you know Rommel is is fating the way he did is because he suggested that Rommel was much more involved than he actually was. Um, yeah. I I'm sorry, Sig. I just, I just don't buy that. I think there's only one reason and one reason only why he um. He was slow to respond on the uh, on the morning of the sixth of June, and that is because on the night of the fifth of June, the weather was so bad. He wasn't. No one was expecting the invasion, and he had people over to dinner, and they got absolutely wankered. Um, and, and if you get wankered, and you're still drinking brandies at midnight and one o'clock in the morning, having had an absolute skinful of fine Bordeaux um, and cigars as well. You're not compass mentis and clear, clear, uh, having clarity of thought at five a.m. You're just not. I think he was still half cut. And, I, and and do you know what? It's the most logical and obvious explanation. I just don't think he was certainly, enough. certainly, I don't think he was certainly full of certainly full of wits to be able to make those kind of decisions. I just think certainly he just more of, certainly a better. That's a, an Occam's razor explanation. Certainly more than 
Well, maybe he wasn't sure because he was a resistor, blah, blah, blah. Don't buy it. I'm, I'm sorry. I think it's just that he was half cut. He was drunk, right? He's pissed. Well, you like an early night, Jim. I mean, if you're not in bed by nine, as we've established. Yeah. You know, you um, know. Uh, so, okay. You know, I'm, well, I'm not, that, you know, after after a night of, of live stream, Friday morning, you know, I'm, 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 what I'm about not as sharp re- as I would be. Not about relaying, what about not relaying orders to bomb Paris? Yeah, that might be. But that things are be. different. But by the time, but but there's there's an example. Like uh, June the fifth, um, uh, the it's invasion pre-plot, comes. Don't forget. It's pre plot. It's pre plot. Um, it's pl- it's pre it's pre having lost the Battle of Normandy and they're here having been essentially destroyed in the West. By the time you by the time Paris is uh, uh, Paris is up for grabs, you may have lost the war. And what you've got to start doing is doing things that um, the Allies will remember. Yeah. But 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 put yourself in put yourself in his boots on the night of the fifth sixth of June nineteen forty four. Okay, the boss is away. He's six hundred miles away in Ulm near Ulm. Okay, you're 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 on your own. You you're absolutely 100% not expecting the invasion that night suddenly reports so you've had a big boozy night you're half cut you're absolutely shattered by kind of 2am in the morning you're about to turn in suddenly kind of signals start coming through and you suddenly think oh my god try and focus try and focus you know I was just about to go to sleep so you're you're tired and drunk and suddenly you've got to think clearly you've got to make monumental decisions without the boss that could affect a zillion things. Are you going to be thinking clearly at that moment? Are you going to be in the best state to make decisive decisions about where Panzer divisions should, particularly when you already know there's orders in place which which are beyond your remit? Well, and also, what if it isn't the invasion? Well, therein lies the biggest, biggest issue of all. That is why they don't act. Because, you know, they, you know, there are people who've discovered that the invasion's coming beforehand. They've worked it yeah. out and they've said it. And Hitler said, no, that can't be possible. So everyone sort of goes, OK, fine. Yeah, you don't want to get that wrong, do you? you yeah. You, you no. Know. no, you, you actually don't want to get that wrong. And no, and that, that is one of the reasons why there was so much indecision in Normandy on the gym, because everyone's so scared of Hitler. You know, thank God it was, you know, for, I mean, just imagine what would have happened if it had been post the 20th of July. I mean, yeah. Not yeah. thank God. I mean, it would have been even, they'd have been even more of a pig's ass of it all. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the German response on the sixth of June is catastrophically bad. I mean, yeah. you know, we have to we have to face that. Um, and, and not least Eric Marx, who's one of the guys who's supposed to be really good and talented. I mean, you know, his decision making process is just abominable. Is it as bad as the French response to Case Yellow in May nineteen forty? No. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think in military history is there any is there a worse no, just because to that? just because you know a big a big part of a big part of when you put a plan together and when you when you line up deception around it one of the things you're trying to get to do is get the enemy to do what you want them to do yeah um but know, all, but, but do, I don't know how the much I don't know how much asked of them you know in May in May 1940 don't they excuse me yeah but what what I'm not sure of is is had British intelligence worked out that they could kind of you know what Hitler was thinking and and you know, were they playing him as a character? Because you know, Hitler is the biggest asswipe of them all, obviously, and and he's the one who who makes the worst mistakes and work worst decisions on D Day. Without without you know, before D Day and on D Day, his decision making process is absolutely appalling. I mean, by any anyone's judgment, and he's the one making the decisions. Ultimately, the buck stops with him, you know. And that's that's that. You know, there are advantages of of having an overmighty warlord. You know, in terms of discipline, everyone will do what you say. But it doesn't work if your decisions are really rubbish, as it didn't for him, or indeed Nazi Germany. And on that thought, that's it for today. We're back on <laughs> Thursday morning, as always. Um, then we're here live on Thursday night, eight thirty p.m. Uh, do join us for that. We have a week of adventures ahead of us, don't we, Jim? Oh, God, such a weather permitting. Week. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's planes tomorrow, tanks on Thursday, cricket bat on Wednesday. Absolutely. Um, family Stories is on Sunday morning. Keep sending those to, to us, please. Um, uh, uh, we have ways podcast at gmail.com, I believe. Um, uh, heading, head them family stories. I absolutely love reading those and then listening mm. to them. Uh, just, the, I mean, the story of the guy um, witnessing his friend's death uh, op- Operation Epsom um, almost had me pull over yesterday it's so horrible so sad um, so keep those coming and thanks again for listening now to episode 300 300 not out James Holland not a bad run 
Very good. See you soon. Tschüssi, tschüss. Cheerio.